Let us pray for a receptive heart and mind to receive God's holy word. Spirit of wisdom and revelation, enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see your revealed truth. Then give us wisdom to understand and the strength to apply it in our day-to-day lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our epistle reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, the word of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning, church. It's a, it's a privilege and an honor for me to be here with you this morning. As, as Pastor Greg said, we had an amazing conference, and uh, we've all been just looking forward to celebrating the Lord's resurrection together with you here at Memorial uh, this morning. It's, it's a great honor and a great privilege to, to be in your pulpit and to be sharing this, this worship with you. I want to take us to what many people consider the high point of the New Testament. We just heard a portion of it read. Romans 8. If you, if you think of the New Testament as a, as a kind of uh, hike or exploration, uh, the mountaintop peak just may be Romans 8. It's an amazing vista that you take in when you stand at that height and you see the full panorama of what the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit have done to redeem us, to reclaim us from the the clutches of sin and death and to to bring us into the new life of adopted children of God. That's what we see unfolded in Romans 8. I want to step back a little bit and, and set the stage and sort of show you how Paul gets there. And then I want to talk about how you can find your own story, your own life, narrated in this text. That's what's happened to me, and I want to unfold that a bit for you. Paul starts off in a very dark place in this letter. Karl Barth, in his great commentary on Romans, calls Romans chapter 1 simply the night. It's bleak. It's dark. There's no hope. Paul diagnoses our fallen condition in very stark terms. He says that we all, without exception, have exchanged the worship that we were built for, the worship that we were intended to enjoy. We've we've exchanged that for tawdry idols that can't satisfy. They're like broken cisterns that leak water out the bottom. And and that's, that's the diagnosis for every single person, every single one of us who are here. There is no unbroken person here. 
as Pastor Greg said earlier. We are all trapped in this, in this prison, this night, this darkness of sin and death. And lest we think that there are any exceptions, Paul pivots in chapter 2 and says, anyone who's cheering along and saying, yay, those sinners are getting what's coming to them, has failed to reckon with their own condition. Their own condition is just as dire as any of the sinners written about in Romans 1. And just when you think there's absolutely no hope at all, Paul nails the final nail in the coffin and says, all are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's the midnight of the text. There's no bleaker point you can go to from there. We are all trapped and ensnared and unable to extricate ourselves from this condition of sin and condemnation. But in chapter 3, the light breaks in. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed from heaven and it's been given to sinners as a free gift through the cross of Jesus Christ who, who, who stretched out his arms of love on the hard wood of the cross as we pray in my tradition. And he bled and he died there to take your sin and my sin and to bear it away so that life and light could flood into the human race and we could enjoy our status as adopted sons and daughters of God. And from there, Paul begins to sing. The, the crescendo steadily builds. He talks about Abraham and how God gave that gift of righteousness to Abraham. He talks about how God's grace even outdoes all the sin that Adam brought into the world. If you thought that Adam was a universal figure, Christ is even more so. If sin abounded, grace much more abounded. And it covers all. And when Paul arrives at Romans 8, you can hear he's almost out of breath. He begins this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And his prose builds, and at the very end of the chapter, we read this. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? That's the promise. God is determined, having given us his son Christ, to take us all the way with him to the triumph of glory. And that's really the amazing thing about Romans 8. That's why so many people talk about it as one of the highest peaks of the New Testament, because Paul's vision is utterly cosmic. The redemption that Christ brings doesn't just touch individual hearts and minds. It's ultimately going to renew the face of the whole earth. And that's where we come in our reading for this morning. Friends, I want to tell you a little bit about why this passage means so much to me, and I, 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 I want to share a bit of my own story with you. And I do this not to hopefully spotlight myself, but to invite you Think about how your story, which certainly will be different than mine, although I hope there will be some similarities, how your story and my story makes sense in light of this great chapter. I'm someone who grew up in a, a Christian family. Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist in Arkansas, not too far from here, and I was baptized at age 11. And I'm one of these kids whose earliest childhood memories are of hearing Bible stories read by my parents. We, we, we went to a Southern Baptist church that had um, amazing stained glass like this. I, 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 I love your, your windows here, but uh, our windows depicted different scenes from the Bible, 
And uh, my parents still have drawings that I made of these, of these Bible scenes, you know, when I was four or five, six years old, uh, that, I, that I made during the sermons. And I loved it. I swam in the, in the atmosphere of the church, and I did not resent it. I was very invested, and I loved it. Got involved in the youth group as I grew older, uh, became a, a Bible study leader. People, people looked up to me as one of the, the mature Christian kids. But what was actually happening, that, all that was true. I did love Jesus. I wanted to grow in him. I wanted to know him and trust him and love him. But what was also happening is I was, I was wrestling internally with so much confusion and so much fear. Um, as, I, as I began puberty, I began to hear my friends at church talk about girls they found attractive and began to talk about, uh, we were Christian kids, so they talked about struggling with lust and praying and trying to find God in the midst of that. Uh, and I remember feeling that whatever they were describing wasn't happening for me something was going differently with my experience, and I couldn't really identify with what they were saying in a direct way. But what was happening was I was beginning to find them attractive. I was beginning to find my guy friends attractive. And, and for, a, for a conservative Southern Baptist boy in Arkansas, this was not good news. <laughs> this, this was very confusing. And uh, I, I remember reading, someone had given me a, a copy of a, of a book, Preparing for Adolescence, uh, written by a Christian. And and there was, there was one line that said, um, you may be wondering about homosexuality, but you don't need to because it's so rare and it probably won't happen to you. And I remember feeling not sure where to go from there. Uh, <laughs> I think it is happening to me. <laughs> um, and and I, I determined, um, I, I mean, I did not grow up in an environment with a lot of overtly homophobic remarks, a lot of uh, hateful speech about gay and lesbian people, but somehow I absorbed through the atmosphere of the church, through the atmosphere of my home, that what I was experiencing was so much beyond the pale, so different from what a Christian should be experiencing, that I did not feel free to talk about it. I didn't feel free to disclose it, even to my parents, who loved me very much, even to my youth pastor, who I trusted immensely and learned from, and so I, I kept it secret. And I remember... Um, sort of mouthing the words at night secretly, I am homosexual, and, and praying that somehow God would take this away. Somehow this burden could be different. I'd take anything else but this. And I remember thinking about, as I finished high school, still having not told anyone, would I be able to perhaps take this secret to the grave? Would I perhaps be able to marry someone of the opposite sex, and that would cause something in my psyche to sh- shift to click into place so that I could be normal, so that I could be uh, the kind of Christian that I believe God wanted me to be. So I went to Wheaton College, uh, determined to um, keep this a secret as best I could, and I began to experience intense fear. I began to hold my friends at arm's length. I began to find myself deceiving others, talking about girls I found attractive, knowing that it wasn't true. Uh, knowing that I was lying in order to try to preserve some facade of normal heterosexuality. And I remember the, the turning point. I now look back on it as providential. The turning point was I sat down to lunch in our college dining commons uh, with one of the girls who lived on the sister wing of my dorm. And we sat down for lunch, and she said, Wes, I, I, I want to tell you something that I have not told you. She was a good friend. And she said, for the past six months, I've been wrestling with the most debilitating depression of my life. And I've 
been feeling ashamed about it. I've been feeling that I shouldn't be this incapacitated. I should somehow be able to manage this and control this. I should be able to be a competent person. And she said, I finally realized that my strategy for managing it wasn't working and the depression was eating me alive and I had to disclose it. I had to share it with someone. And she said, what I've learned in this journey of seeking healing is that ignoring is not the path to redeeming. Ignoring is not the path to redeeming. And I didn't say anything to her that day, but I felt that those words were for me. I had been trying to uh, cope with my own same-sex desire by ignoring it, even in my own prayer life. just didn't want to face it. Ignoring it, burying it, stuffing it away, hoping that with the lack of oxygen down there in my heart, it would just wither and go away. But it didn't. The New Testament talks about our Christian lives as lives of walking in the light. I was walking in fear instead of light. And I went away that day from that lunch determined that I would, that I had to find a way to share this with another believer and bring it to the Lord and, and find some help. And I did. I told one of my professors and he gave me the gift. I, I, I often say he gave me the gift of not being shocked. Francis Schaeffer says that Christians should never have the reaction designated by the term shocked. Uh, that shouldn't be in our, in our repertoire of responses. Uh, why? Because we, we, have, we have a story that's big enough to handle anything that life throws at you. We believe that we're created by a holy God. We believe that every one of us is desperately in need of him because we've fallen away from him in sin and rebellion and death. And we believe that he has come, uh, he sent his son to die for us, to redeem us, to reconcile us to himself, and he will come again in glory to judge the quick and the dead. If you, if you believe that story, there's literally nothing that life can throw at you that should shock you. He, he gave me the gift of not being shocked. And from there, it was a gradual step to more and more learning how to walk in the light, learning how to talk about my characteristic pattern of, of temptation, desire, loneliness, longing, hoping, fearing, learning how to bring that into the light of God's word, God's people, God's community. And this conference this weekend was one of those moments where God met me yet again and encouraged me. Um, friends, I want to go back to Romans 8 and invite you to think with me about how does a story like that, how does your story, how does your story make sense in light of what we see of the story of the gospel here in Romans 8? Look again at what was read for us. Paul says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. Paul, in other words, Go back to my image. He's, he's painting a cosmic picture here. He's not just talking about the past moment when you were reconciled to God. He's not just looking backwards to your baptism or the moment when you first heard the gospel. He's looking ahead, and he's saying there's coming a day. He calls it glory. Glory is going to be revealed. The glory of Jesus, the glory of the fullness of redemption. There's coming a day when that glory will so eclipse your present sufferings, that they will, they will just seem light and momentary by comparison. We can't imagine what that's like, but that's the promise here. He goes on, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Paul's personifying creation here. 
Again, not just an individual aspect of creation, but the entirety of the world. The world is waiting. The creation waits with eager longing. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, he says, creation is on tiptoe, waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. Paul is saying that when you look at creation as it presently exists, it's, it's captive to corruption, to futility, to vanity, as Ecclesiastes calls it. Uh, we see this all over the place. I believe I see it in my own sexuality. I believe my same-sex desire is a symptom of the world's fallenness. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Maybe it's for you something different. Anxiety, uh, gnawing fear about how to parent, uh, great disappointment and heartache over a broken friendship or an addiction. Whatever it may be, we know in our bones that we're, we're captive to futility. We share in the corruption and brokenness of creation. That futility is, is the, the sentence that God handed creation over to when we turned away from him. It's the world's brokenness that Adam ushered in with his transgression. But, notice that word, God subjected creation to futility in hope. In other words, this present groaning that you experience and I experience is not the final word of God for us. He subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul is looking ahead to a time when the the present distress will give way to redemption, when creation itself will be healed, when there will be no more ecological crisis or mental illness or sexual brokenness. All will be made well in the light of God's healing mercy. He goes on, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth, in labor pains, until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is being utterly pastorally realistic here. He knows that although we have the down payment, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and among us, that doesn't simply erase or cancel out all the pain. What it means is that we are suspended, as it were, in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We know that Christ has come to save us. We, we have his very own spirit dwelling in us. We cry out in joy. We sing in joy like we've done this morning. But we also lament. We also grieve because we do not yet see the fullness of our redemption. We look forward to a day, along with the whole creation, when we will be set free from this bondage to decay. I can't tell you how powerful it was for me as a young uh, gay man wrestling with his sexuality, wanting to follow Christ, wanting to experience the healing mercy of Christ and say no to sexual sin. I can't tell you how powerful it was to read these verses and to come across a commentary by Richard Hayes where he says, anyone who doesn't recognize in that text an authentic description of genuine Christian discipleship 
has never wrestled seriously with the imperatives of the gospel, which challenge and frustrate all our natural impulses in countless ways. If you find yourself reading that and seeing yourself there, you're in good company because Paul says that's the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of groaning and waiting, not groaning without joy. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, Paul calls it in another place. We joy because we have the Holy Spirit and we groan because we know in our bones that our bodies are still fallen. We're still subject to temptations. We're still vulnerable to the attacks of the world the flesh, and the devil, but we know where we're headed. We know the end of that journey, and it looks like glory. It looks like the very remaking of these fallen bodies. It looks like the resurrection of the dead. Paul goes on. We groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says, we have not yet been given what we will be given, but we hope for it. We don't yet see what we want to see. I don't yet see the removal of my same-sex temptations. You don't yet see the removal of whatever burden you carry. What we do see is Jesus, who's gone ahead of us, who's pioneered the way, and who's promised that there is coming a day when all this groaning, all this brokenness will be done away with forever. And until then, we cling in hope to him. We wait eagerly. We, together with creation, stand on tiptoe as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may we live this life of waiting, this life of longing in hope. Strengthen our hope once again this morning. We pray as you meet us in your holy communion that we might taste once again the goodness of your mercy and that our longing might be stirred up for the day that we see you face to face. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.